All right, our children are dismissed. Uh, back towards the corner to my right, your left. You'll see Pastor Justin over there. I always do this, don't I? I'm going to like, destroy this thing. While you guys are trying to figure out what I'm up to here. All right, there we go. So, kids are dismissed. Um, and uh, one announcement for us uh, is uh, during the month of December, we will be taking an offering. We have some very unique opportunities as a church um, that we're going to, we look forward to kind of uh, explain some of those next Sunday for you, uh, but just want to make you aware of that, that uh, we normally have an offering this time of year, and so we're going to have one in the month of December, and uh, we will be giving you that detailed information next Sunday. Um, so we're going to read, we're going to study the Bible together here. All right, the Gospel of Matthew, my name is Chris, I am one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new with us, welcome, glad that you're here. Uh, our, our habit, our pattern as a church is just to kind of walk through a book of the Bible. And right now, uh, we have uh, the Gospel of Matthew in front of us, and we are in, as was read, chapter 11. So let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, uh, please help us, God, as we look at this. Um, it's so easy to think of this as just maybe black words on white paper here, or just a, a digital screen of just words. And yet, God, uh, this is the words of the living God. These are eternal words. These are things that were recorded, written uh, so long ago, and yet, God, um, words that are accurate and true and life-giving. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, um, and uh, help us, God, make our hearts pliable, teachable. And Lord, most of all, more than anything else, what we come here for this morning is to make much of you, to see Jesus, and I pray, God, that you would show us his glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been uh, looking at Jesus in action in the Gospel of Matthew, and we have seen uh, Jesus love people. We've seen him love people by teaching them. We have seen him love people by healing them. We have seen, um, we've seen him love people by serving them, even raising some from the dead. He's even, uh, as we saw last week, sent out his disciples to kind of uh, follow, follow him and do the things that they saw him do, and in turn, the result is that we have seen, as a church today, uh, 2,000 years later, what it looks like to be on mission, what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to, to serve and love people as he did. And one of the things that, uh, that we're going to find out, that as you do that and as we move out, that it's, it's uncomfortable at times. It's hard uh, at times. Um, it is hard to, to serve people. It pushes us outside of our comfort zone. Doing the work of ministry, being on mission, serving and loving, marginalized as Jesus did, is very difficult. There's a lot of rejection out there, right? Uh, sometimes there's little reward for it. It costs us, right? It costs your time. It costs your resources. And then you add to all of that, just following Jesus, being on mission together, serving people like that, add to all of that just the daily burdens that each of you bring to the table today, right? The daily burdens of just life itself. You have marital conflict. You have parenting challenges. You have job loss. You have health struggles, um, you have anxiety about the future, anxiety about COVID, right? You have social and political turmoil around us. I add all of these different things, those daily burdens on top of the ones of just following Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. All this results in some days where you just kind of want to hang it up. It results in some days, if we're honest with ourselves, you just kind of want to stay in bed. and be like, I'm going to sleep this one off, right? I'm going to kind of sleep this one off and hope the next day is better than today. Um, this leads to questions, Right? This leads to questions. This even leads to times of, of doubt and, dare I say, even times of despair. We wonder sometimes what Jesus is up to. We wonder if, uh, if he even hears our prayers. We wonder if we're, are, we, are we doing the right thing? Right? These are questions we ask. Does this sound familiar to you? Um, I've been there. Unfortunately, I go back to that well often, right? Wondering, questioning, asking. Um, I have questions as well. I experience despair as well. And listen, you, you may be new to church in general, you may be new to the idea of Christianity, and you may come with an idea or a thinking of, you know, I didn't think Christians actually doubted. I mean, I, I didn't think especially pastors, right? <laughs> pastors don't doubt, right? They're, they're the ones that don't do that. I didn't think Christians struggle with their faith. I didn't think Christians struggle with God. I figured you guys had it all together. That's kind of maybe why I'm here, right? You guys got it all together, and you figured it out, and you know everything, and so that's the way it goes. As I remind you a few weeks ago, I told you this, that uh, in, in many ways, we are just one beggar telling another beggar where we found the bread, right? We're just one beggar telling another beggar where we found the bread. We have questions, too. We don't always have all the answers. 
Um, as the book of Hebrews will tell us, we live by faith, not by sight. Sometimes what we see doesn't make sense, right? So that's why we live by faith in the person and work of Christ. So today, as a church, I'm going to tell you, it's okay to have doubts. Okay, that may be something you never heard of in church before. It'd be like, no, we're not supposed to have any doubts. Yeah, it's okay. There, there are questions you have. That's good. Questions are good. Questions are off limits. Um, struggle is common. No matter how long you have walked with Jesus, there will be moments of questions. There'll be moments of despair and darkness, especially if, if you follow Jesus in the, in, in the world. As you move out to serve people, love people, get out on mission, you're going to experience that times of darkness. What we will find in our text today is John the Baptist is his name. He's doubting uh, the reality of Jesus, uh, possibly, probably, as we'll look at in a minute, and in despair. And I love how Jesus deals with him. I I love how he sends his disciples and how he sends the message back to them. He doesn't send John's disciples back to him and say, you know what, John, you need to suck it up, buttercup. You need to, like, you know, you need to deal with this. You need to, like, you need to deal with it. It's okay. You need to stop your doubting. Stop asking your questions. Don't dare ask me that. He didn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that at all. He's patient with him. He is going to welcome the questions. And, uh, and what is really awesome is that Jesus is going to kind of lean in on John's doubts and despair. And he's going to give him hope. He's going to give us hope in the process. Anyone need hope today? Anyone have some doubts today? Anyone despairing? There is hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I don't know where you are today in your walk with Jesus. I don't even know if you even know who he is I want you to know that Jesus welcomes questions, and he welcomes doubters. He welcomes those in despair, and so does Parkside. And maybe you're not there right now. Maybe you're like, I don't have any of those struggles. Okay, that's all right. That's good. Uh, I'm happy for you. (laughs) But there will be moments. If not now, you will experience them in the future of times of, of doubt, times of question, times of despair. And so we want to both serve you now if that is you, and we also want to help prepare you for those times where that will happen for you. And so what we're going to look at today is the, the reality of doubt and despair. Number two, the source of doubt and despair, some sources. And then number three, hope for doubt and despair. All right, number one, the reality. Let's kind of look at that first, the reality of doubt and despair. Now, we all have doubts, doubts about the future, doubts about our own maybe abilities, doubts about our relationships, doubts about health, about the meaning of life, even sometimes about God himself. And there are times we wonder if God is even there. You ever had those moments where you feel like you pray and the, the, the prayers are bouncing off the wall, right? They're not going anywhere. They don't seem to, to go past the very room that I, that I am in. We feel alone at times in the universe, right? Uh, there are times we, we are tempted to doubt whether the, the Bible is even true. Sometimes we read things and we go like, I don't understand why that happened or this happened. I don't know what it means. It really frustrates me, right? And that's, that happens. We wonder at times. We experience these things. Whatever the reasons, we have doubts. Sometimes they almost seem to threaten the foundations of our, of our faith. John faced that. Look at verse 2 in our text. John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, and he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's kind of shocking to read. I mean, do we read that right? I mean, did he, just ask, did he really just ask that question? Uh, Jesus, are you really the one that I thought you were, or should I look for somebody else? Right? He's wondering, is Jesus really who he says he is? And you would think that if anyone, if you are familiar with the the story of Matthew so far, if you're familiar with the Bible or who this John the Baptist is, if there was anyone who wouldn't have doubts, you would think it'd be this guy. Um, He's the one later, earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, tells us that even when he was in his mother's womb, he was leaping for joy. (laughs) When when his mom and and, and the mother of Jesus kind of met, he started leaping in in the womb there, excited about the, the reality of Christ. He's also the one that was in the wilderness, right? We, we read that story. He was out there, and he, he even baptized Jesus himself. He, he called him, the Gospel of John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty astounding statement, fulfilling the imagery of the Old Testament. He, he affirmed that, and yet here he is asking, are you, maybe not. <laughs> are you really the one? He's also the one that, remember, when Jesus was baptized, he heard, he heard the very voice of the Father from heaven say, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, he has got a lot of evidence. He's got a lot of experiences that should validate this and force no questions. Shouldn't have any questions, yet he does. And just think about just him as a person, his whole lifestyle, his choices, the sacrifices he made, living out in the wilderness kind of thing. It was based on faith in God, and yet he doubts. 
And if John the Baptist can have doubts, I think anyone can. It's fascinating to me that as I, as I studied this that some commentaries, now commentaries, if you know what that means, is there's writers that kind of do what I'm doing here, but they write books uh, on kind of comments about the Bible and different things. And some, I read not all, but some of them kind of tried to push this away and say, you know what, what John really wasn't doubting here, he was actually um, he was actually asking this question for the sake of his disciples. He, he didn't have any concerns himself. He was just trying to help his disciples. And this is, the, again, I think a classic presupposition, I meaning a classic un- misunderstanding within the church that, hey, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't have any doubts at all. You shouldn't have any questions about this. But it's the belief that John was, was strong, right? He's secure. He knew what he was doing. But my friends, John doubted. And he wasn't the first one. He wasn't the first one to do that, all right? Let's just think about the Bible for a minute. The Bible has got a long line of doubters. We come from a long line of them, okay? Adam and Eve, right? Very beginning of the Bible, doubted the goodness of God in the garden, right? Ate the forbidden fruit. You may be familiar with that story. Abraham, we go not too far into the book of Genesis, doubted God's provision of a son in his old age, and he went and, and had sex with his wife's maid instead and had a baby through her and didn't follow God that way. Joseph doubted God's plan while in prison, wondered why others were getting set free and not him. Moses doubted the power of God to speak through him. Do you remember this story in Exodus? And he said, um, I'm not very eloquent. How about my brother speak for, for me instead? Right? So he doubted. Uh, we think about David. David doubted God's plan for his life, determined that uh, Bathsheba would be his wife instead of, instead of uh, who he had, instead of, uh, instead of that, instead of Uriah being married to him, and had Uriah killed instead. Job doubted the God's sovereignty, questioned him on multiple occasions constantly about his circumstances in life. And even as Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospel of John, we meet a guy named Nathaniel. He becomes one of these disciples we read last week. And he hears about Jesus, and he hears where he's from. He hears he's from Nazareth. And you know what his question was? He goes, can, it, can anything good come out of that place? <laughs> I mean, can anybody good come out? I mean, I've seen Nazareth, and I've seen people come from there, and they're not good. You mean to tell me the Messiah came from there? I mean, it, that's his first question when he, when he hears him. Even the Gospel of John will tell us that even Jesus' own half-brothers didn't believe in him until after he rose from the dead. They thought he was a joke. They didn't believe him at all. Uh, and then you think of uh, even after his resurrection, some of his disciples doubted too. You probably may remember this one. We call him Doubting Thomas for a reason, right? Thomas is like, yeah, I know Jesus said he rose from the dead, and I know you guys even saw it, but... I ain't going to believe until I see him. I need the proof. I need to see the hands, right? I mean, it's just over and over and over again, the people who are followers of God, who believe in the reality of God, who follow Christ, have questions, have doubts at times. The Bible's full of it. Think about how reassuring that is, right? For some of you who are struggling today, this is one of the many reasons why I believe the Bible is actually true and not false, why I believe that God wrote it, not man. Because if man wrote the Bible, if human beings wrote the Bible, they would write self-assuring like nobody ever doubted. Everyone was sure about Jesus, right? No one had any questions. And yet, the reality is they did, right? They, they, they would record only faith and no doubt. They talk about how faithful and devout people were and how God blessed them as a result. If, man, if mankind wrote the Bible, grace would be ripped off its pages and replaced by merit. But when you read the Bible, it's full of broken, doubting, despairing people. It's only one hero in the whole story, right? It's Jesus. He's the only hero in the whole, in the whole book. Um, and I could dare say even he struggled at times, right? And he didn't sin, but he struggled, right? I mean, remember the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he say? Remember he asked the question, if there's any way possible, can this cut pass from me? Even on the cross as he dies, he says, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me? Question mark? That's a question, right? I mean, he did sin and that is a struggle. It's okay to struggle with life. It's okay to struggle at times with the reality of God, struggle with the scriptures at times. It shows there's, there's life in you. I always tell people that. I've, I've, I've been counseling sessions with people really struggle. Like, maybe I'm not a Christian because I, I just have so many doubts and I struggle. To me, that shows life in you. It shows fight. It shows that you're actually wrestling with the reality. You're not like, nah, forget it. Like, you're working. You're wrestling through it. Uh, you don't say that, um, these kind of things, unless you're wrestling with it. It's okay, to be, it's okay to even be offended by Jesus. If you honestly read the Bible and read the things that Jesus says, there's a sense of offense at times. You're like, did he really just say that? <laughs> I mean, look, look at verse 6 in our text. Jesus has to say, blessed are those who are not offended by me. You don't say that unless people are already offended by what you have to say or are going to be offended by what you have to say. Um, as we saw in chapter 10, Jesus says some tough things. The struggle so shows you've encountered a real God. 
When you're wrestling with the reality of God, it shows that you're facing a real God and not a figment of your imagination, okay? Not somebody that you've made up, not the American Jesus or cultural Christianity Jesus. Like, you're wrestling with the reality of God because, because there's some stuff there that just don't, just don't jive with you. Struggle shows you've counted a real God. The made-up Jesus that we like to do in our culture, the made-up Jesus comfortably fits in our back pocket, and he never offends you. He never says no to you. He affirms everything about you and what you want to do, right? That's, the, that's a made-up Jesus. That's not the real one of the Bible. The real one, you're going to struggle with at times. <laughs> the real one, you're going to ask some questions, right? There's a real one, you're going to be like, oh, I don't know about this, right? We struggle sometimes as a result of all that. We have doubts sometimes. There's an old phrase, uh, I'm going to talk about the Puritans here for a minute, all right? You go back to the Puritans uh, uh, earlier on, a couple hundred years ago. They, they, they wrote a lot about this, actually, and, uh, and they described one of the phrases they would use was called the dark night of the soul. That was the word they would use, or the soul's winter time. I never knew what that meant until I moved to Indiana. I'm like, I know what that means now. The soul's winter time in California was like, it's still warm. Um, but... Uh, the, the soul's winter time, right? The, 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 the dark night of the soul. They, they had ways of describing what they, what they described as they felt God's, not withdrawal literally, but the feel that God had withdrew from them. The feeling that God had kind of left them and they wrestled with that. Matter of fact, they, they wrote books about this all the time. There's a ton of them. I'll give you a couple of the titles and kind of gives you an idea that, hey, they, they wrote a lot about this. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book called A Child of Light Walking in Darkness. Joseph Simmons wrote the, the Case and the Cure of a Deserted Soul. Christopher Love wrote the book called The Dejected Soul's Cure. Uh, Richard Sibbs, The Soul's Conflict. William Bridges, A Lifting Up for the Downcast. Right? This was this books that they wrote because they realized that people who were following Jesus had struggles. Uh, there will be times where everything will seem to go right. And there's times that everything will seem to go wrong. There will be times where you will feel like you can touch the face of God. You feel so close and you feel like times that he's not even listening. Listen, we're not here as a church. I told you before to play games here. We're not here to applaud ourselves. We're not here to just feel good about ourselves. We're here to wrestle. We're here to go hard after Jesus. We're here to, as Paul would say, fight the, the good fight. It's a fight. It's, it's a good fight. Right? It's worth fighting. Um, we're here to pull each other up when we fall as we move out together and serve people together and go on mission together. Sometimes you'll be the strong one, and there'll be others in the church and fellow brothers and sisters who are weak, and they've fallen, and you pick them up, and you carry them for a bit, right? Other times you're going to be the one that falls, and you're going to be weak, and there's going to be other brothers and sisters in the church. That's why we have a church. That's why, that's why we're together. It's not just a show, you know, come up on Sunday morning and kind of, you know, have some words here. It's like we're family, and we help each other as we move forward because there'll be ebbs and flows to that. The Puritans would argue that uh, doubts and despair actually serve to draw us closer to God. I thought it was interesting. It causes us to kind of raise a flag that, hey, you know what, things aren't okay here. It forces us to, to push in instead of kind of hit the cruise control on our walk with Jesus. They, they hesitated in their books to identify them as signs of judgment. They rather viewed them as opportunities to be carried more deeply into grace. They spoke of how one experiences God in loss more powerfully uh, than in attainment. They spoke of how God longs for what lies in the depths of your soul. Whatever's there, whatever questions you have, whatever issues are going on in your soul, God wants that, right? doesn't want you to fake it and, you know, re, you know, kind of act like everything's okay. He wants what's down deep into the soul. Just consider the book of Psalms for a minute. It does not uh, let us live. The book doesn't let us live in a naive kind of romantic world stripped of doubt and despair and pain. It's filled. The Psalms are, right? It's filled with raw emotion, deep pain, confusing losses, profound doubts. It's one thing, if one thing the Psalms teach us it's that if the only prayer that you have to offer is one of doubt and despair, that we offer it anyway. <laughs> That's what it teaches us. Whatever's there, just offer it. Um, listen to Psalm 88 is just one example. Psalm 88, 13 through 18, this is a, one of the prayers. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful uh, assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my, my beloved, my friend, to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Wow, that's, 
that's in the Bible, <laughs> right? That's, that's a real prayer. God, I, I don't understand, right? There's a sense of uh, where in the world are you, God, kind of thing. There's a sense of like no one seems to care about me, not even you. Why is life so hard? Why aren't you present? Have you left me too like everybody else has? That's the kind of prayer. You've been there? Are you there now? If it's doubt and despair, it's kind of part of the Christian life. There are ebbs and flows to that. So if you're struggling, if you're doubting, you're not alone, right? You're not abnormal. It's not strange. It's part of it, all right? Number one, that's number two. Number two is source of doubt and despair. And doubt is caused by many different things. Uh, I believe in John's life, as we examine his life and his situation, which we're going to do now, I think we find a few things that could be leading to these questions that he is asking. And I'll, offer up, I'll give you five of them. Um, this is not an exhaustive list. Don't look up here and go like, these are it. These are only sources of doubt. But just let me give you a couple of them I think were happening with John here based on his situation. The first one I would say is based on what I'll call attack. There's little doubt that John was experiencing spiritual attack. We've, uh, you see back in uh, verse 2 here, we find that John is in prison. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us what's going on. Matthew doesn't tell us how he ended up in prison, but the Gospel of Mark does tell us. And Mark records that while, while he was in prison, while John was in prison, he was in prison during this time, Herod the king, outside of the, the prison cell, which I'm going to show you some pictures in a minute, give you an idea of where he was. Herod the king was outside you know, his place having, having a big party having a huge shindig, massive feast, a lot of people there. And all of a sudden, during this party, he's with all of his friends. A young lady comes out, scantily dressed, you know. She comes out, she does a dance for Herod, and Herod just kind of loses himself, and he kind of goes, hey, whatever you want, darling, anything. You name it, I'll give it to you. And she asks for what any young lady would ask for. I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's <laughs> what she asked for. This is in the story. And the king, all of his friends are around, like, hey, are you really going to do this? And he's like, well, I said I would. I guess I have to, right? So th this is all going on right, as, as this story is taking place, and John's writing back. Uh, this is obviously a, a demonic thing. There's definitely spiritual attack happening. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of John, right? Uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Satan will, will tempt you to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's wisdom, to doubt God's love. Uh, just look, uh, go way back to Adam and Eve, right? Very first temptation to them was for doubt. Did God really say? Did he really? I mean, and just what well, is little seeds of doubt, isn't it? Little seeds of doubt right there in the very beginning. You get Jesus in, Ma in, uh, in Matthew 4, we saw this, right? Did, 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 is God really going to take care of you? Is God really going to provide for you? Are you really the Messiah, right? All the temptations that came after Jesus were seeds of doubt, right? Don't underestimate the, the demonic activity in times of doubt. I encourage you, if you haven't read it, there's a book in our bookstore called Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, but it's a, a great way of just looking at hey, temptation and how it takes place and what's going on there. Number two, another reason that may be going on here, I'll call it fatigue. Sometimes doubt uh, comes from when we were bored or sick or tired or just weak, right? It can be drained physically and emotionally. John, I'm sure, was both of those, drained physically and emotionally, don't think that when it says he's in prison, okay, when it just says he's in prison, we, if you're not familiar with the history here, you immediately think maybe our modern-day prison system. That's not what was going on. He was not in a cell with a bed, a toilet, reading materials, a TV, and free weights, okay? He didn't have that. He was uh, basically in a hole in the ground. Uh, it was more like maybe modern-day equivalent, maybe more like solitary confinement would it be kind of like what he was in. Uh, it's difficult not to compare John, you think about him, to Elijah, right? Very similar, if you're familiar with the Old Testament there with Kings, uh, 1 Kings 18 and 19. They resembled each other in very similar ways. Elijah denounced the sins of King Ahab and Jezebel. John denounced the sins of Herod and, uh, and his lover Herodias. This is why he ended up in prison for the, the first time. See, John was in prison because he had, he had spoke the truth, okay? He was in prison because Herod, the king, had paid a visit to his brother in Rome, and during that visit, he seduced his brother's wife, came back home with her, and ditched his own wife, right? So he basically hooked up with his sister-in-law, and John called him out on it and told him, dude, that's not, that's not right. And as a result of that, he ended up in prison for it. So we can imagine John here, fatigued emotionally, drained, spent physically. Uh, we think about, the, again, the comparison to Elijah. When Elijah got threatened, he, he fled the desert to the desert, right? He he wanted to die, 1 Kings 19 says. He was in such despair. Would John have been any less exhausted based on his situation and what was going on? 
I mean, physical and emotional fatigue can play on your heartstrings, right? It can, it can stir despair into your soul. It can send you spiraling in doubt. I love one of the first things that God does with Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is he goes, you know, take a nap, here's some food. <laughs> it's kind of like that's, that's the, you, need, you need to get some sleep, right? There's a big part of that. Number three, another one is just trouble, just, just circumstances. Sometimes doubts come when we are grieving, right, the, the, the death of someone we love, maybe grieving the death of a dream, maybe grieving the pain of someone you love who is struggling. Sometimes doubts come when we do what the Bible says and says we weep with those who weep. Sometimes that comes with it. John was in prison. He was cut off uh, from what was happening out in the world. And although his disciples could visit him, apparently from this text, he was still sidelined, right? He was, off the, he was off the playing field. He was benched, as it were. He was not out there in the public anymore, wasn't out where he was before. And it must have been really difficult for him, especially a man of his temperament, right? Remember, best way to describe John the Baptist, he was like a man of the woods. Apparently the guy loved camping. I don't understand why, but he did. Right? He was always out in the woods. He was always hanging out in the woods. He was out there. He was preaching to people. People were flocking. We read earlier on in, in the gospel, right? They were, they were all coming out to hear him, and all of a sudden, now you're in a hole in the ground. That's a little bit different circumstance, isn't it? He's sidelined. He's isolated, imprisoned, and Herod's prepared to take his head off. And so we, we know from, from history that he was most likely, because he, inherit, he was at Herod's place, was incarcerated in a dungeon um, called um, Materius was the name of the place. It was a hot, desolate, uh, desert fortress and was perched on a high ridge above the Dead Sea. Today, there's dungeons still there. We don't know which one maybe he was in, but you'll see some of the pictures up on the screen will kind of help, help you see this is kind of what he would have been inside of, uh, inside of a cave, down and deep into a hole uh, in those places. And this was out in the desert before John was out in the woods, right? This is out in the desert. It's dry. Um, he lived for the outdoors, right? The guy was in the wilderness all the time, surrounded by trees, never even in a house, apparently. Uh, it must have been agony to be inside these four walls, inside of a cave, surrounded by darkness, okay? So imagine the situation. You're in this place. It's 100 plus degrees. It's the middle of the desert. You're in a hole in the ground. Um, complete isolation, except for maybe a few visits, which you could get from his disciples. No food, all right? No clothing. They didn't serve you there. The only way you would survive is if people brought you those things, uh, we can start to see why John may have been asking, hey, um, Jesus, are you, you sure you're the one or should I be looking for somebody else? Because my circumstances here don't seem to be adding up to what I thought you were, right? Doubt and despair can arise in times of trouble. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what it's like literally to be John, right? To be behind prison bars, to be incarcerated. Uh, you were met with doubts by your decisions or uh, the trajectory you were on. Others of you, may not have been a literal prison like John, but you've felt like you've been in one, right? Um, currently in a prison maybe of your own making, hounded by bad habits or decisions you have made, feeling there's no escape. But if you're here today, again, struggling with believing Jesus and trusting him because of pain and heartache, this is, again, where the church comes in. This is part of why we're here. Romans tells us to weep with those who weep, right? To rejoice with those who rejoice. There are times to celebrate with each other. There's times, there's times to cry together with each other. Time to rejoice over events together and mourn losses together, right? As we move out together and serve, as we've been seeing Jesus do and we are to do, we're to do it together and we are to, to help each other. And when there's times of despair and discouragement and rejection, we, we, we carry that together, right? And when there's times of celebration and rejoicing, we rejoice together. That's all part of what the church is. Let me give you a fourth reason for this doubt and despair. We'll call it disappointment. Often uh, doubts and despair come when you're disappointed with Jesus, right? We... We thought, we knew what he would do for us. We had expectations of what salvation even would look like. When I became a Christian, I expected this, this, and this. Now, you may not have articulated that, but you had some sort of expectation of what it's going to be like. And when he fails to maybe grant us the, the things we wanted, right, the physical healing, the financial prosperity, or the family situation we prayed for, we're tempted to doubt if God is really who he claims to be. John faced this. Because Jesus was not living up to really what he expected or even what he prophesied. If you go back to chapter 3, you'll find that John calls Jesus a couple of things. One, he calls him the, the mighty one in whose sandals I am unworthy you know, to, to untie. He also called him one who had, he called he has a winnowing fork in his hand. And uh, he's ready to clear his threshing floor. He's ready to burn up the chaff. He's going to bring judgment. Okay, that, that, was, that was his idea. That's what he was talking about, Jesus. 
And so John was okay with the healings, casting out demons, teaching ministry of Jesus. That was good. But no doubt, John was thinking, as maybe many of the disciples were thinking, as we see later on in the gospel, what they were thinking, Jesus, where's the judgment here? Okay, we're glad you're helping people out, but when are you going to bring the hammer? <laughs> when are you going to clear out those Romans? When are you going like, to uh, clean things up and blow things up here? Because so where's the winnowing fork, Jesus? Right? Where are you, when are you going to clear the threshing fork? Where's the fire? And so John looked around his prison walls and no doubt just felt the whole injustice of it all. Like, I'm just surrounded by walls. This doesn't look like Jesus has a winnowing fork here. This doesn't look like the mighty one here. Why am I inside of a wall? Why isn't Jesus helping me out here? Many of John's presuppositions about Jesus are being blown apart here. Just, just look at Jesus' motley crew of disciples. We talked about this last week. There was not a king. There was not a warrior, a fighter, a soldier, a commander, not even a politician. There wasn't even a ninja in that group, right? There was none of them. There was nobody there that could help him out in that sense. They're a bunch of no-name people as far as John is concerned. And John's getting happy that they're following him, but shouldn't he be surrounded by soldiers, mighty people, uh, to help him overthrow Rome or at least overthrow Herod, who's about to take his head off? John knew he was the forerunner. Okay? He understood that. And Jesus even affirms that here. He was the announcer of the Messiah. He was, he was like, uh, speaking here of Elijah and coming, and coming as the forerunner. He was the one preparing the way for the people. And that was what he was doing out in the wilderness when he was baptizing people. That's what he was doing. And here he, here he was shooting it straight there, right? He was telling them like it is. He was sticking out his neck, as it were, for Jesus. And yet, what is the announcer of the Messiah doing on death row about to be squashed like a grape? Doubt and despair can arise when we have certain expectations of God that he doesn't meet. But understand this. This is very important for you to understand, okay? Jesus doesn't fit into our plans. We fit into his, okay? Um, as a matter of fact, what, what we call good and sometimes what he calls good for us looks drastically different, right? We have a script. We write up to God, and here's how I want my life to go, and we present it to him, and a lot of times he just takes and goes, here's one. Take this one. <laughs> and we're like, no, I want my script. I want, I want what I want to do in my life to look like. And God's like, no, this is, you're following me. You're all in on me. This is my script for you. We need to remember this, right? He is eternal. He is wise. He's all-knowing. He stands outside of time. He sees the beginning from the end. end. We are, it's like we're in this raft of life, floating down river, uh, the river of time. We can only see what's in front of us. Jesus is up on the highest mountain. He sees the beginning of the river from the end of the river. He sees all the bends. He sees the rapids. He sees the waterfalls. He sees all of it. And it's not always smooth sailing, but he knows what he's doing with that. Fifthly, another reason why doubt and despair can come, uh, the fact of the matter, can be sin. Sometimes doubt and despair come when we're, we've given in to destructive patterns of sin and no longer able to think clearly about spiritual things. Our sins, our vices kind of cloud our vision of Jesus so we can't see him clearly. This causes our soul to begin to doubt the value of Christ and to search somewhere else, right, in the world. I love how uh, Maurice Roberts, uh, writer, we have one of his books out there in the bookstore. It's really good. He said this. He said, the soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go any length of time without tasting the glory of Christ. When Jesus ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. That's a fascinating observation. Jesus goes in silent search. It just starts to, as Hebrews 2 says, just drift. The coat, you know, begin to drift away. That's what I think behind some of John's statements. When he says in verse 3, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? In many ways, John is doubting the value of Jesus. He's wondering if he should start looking for another Jesus. And this is what happens to our souls, Right? When we go after sin instead of going hard after Jesus, we go looking for another Jesus. We go looking for another Savior. You understand that, right? Wherever you are today with God, you can't live without a Savior, right? You can't live without a Jesus, a God, as it were. Uh, we have to have satisfaction for our souls. We have to live for something or someone. No one can escape the search of a Messiah, 
Okay, you may not call it that, but that's what it is. Messiah can take on uh, another person, can take on the form of a career, can take on a stack of $100 bills, can take on a, sta- a, a bottle of pills, so he can take on any of those things. Messiahs can take on a lot of different forms. Our attempt at finding salvation, deliverance, satisfaction, and a savior, whatever that may be, we can messiahify about anything in life, right? Um, they all leave us wanting more. They all leave us empty, eventually leave us in despair. And so one of the things we need to do is take inventory uh, of when we are having doubts and despair. We need to take inventory of our heart. Where are we at? doesn't mean that there's directly sin tied to it, but it could be. It's a good opportunity to begin to kind of search and go like, God, have I wandered off? Have I begun to search? Have I done that silent search? Has it started in my soul? Have we started to venture away from Christ? Down despair may be the work of the Spirit actually to waken you up to something, right? To open up your eyes. Lastly, number three, the hope for doubt and despair. The only hope for this is Jesus, okay? The true Jesus of the Bible. Notice that John was struggling. Notice what he did in our text, okay? Notice what he did. He didn't stew in prison. I love this about him. He didn't brood over his skeptical doubts, as it were. He went to the source, didn't he? Hey, I can't go myself. I'm stuck in prison. Disciples, can you go ask Jesus this question? Go to him. Ask him personally, right? He went to Jesus. He didn't, he didn't depend on someone else's views, he didn't depend on a view that maybe he had, right? He can't, you can't find hope for doubt in a, a handcrafted Jesus that you just kind of make up. To be sure that Jesus, who he says he is, you have to go back to the person and work, right? This is what we must always do in those dark nights of the soul. We must seek him, demand that he reveal himself in the scriptures, go hard after him in the scriptures. Don't be content with a, a cursory view of Jesus. Don't be content with what you've been told about the reality of God and Jesus. Go look yourself. Go put your nose in the book. Read yourself. Dig in. And do this, again, as a community. Go to the source as a community. Do this together while on mission. And so John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, and Jesus answers him back. And I love, I love how he answers him back. You would think Jesus could say something like, hey, go tell John what I tell you. Look down at verse four. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, go back and tell Jesus these words of what I say. What does he say? Go back and tell, go back and, uh, go back and tell John what I do. <laughs> I love that. Look, look at verse four. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, poor good news preached to them. Is that interesting? Is that an interesting response? When you think he would give like a dissertation of like all these different, you know, theological points, he doesn't do that. He goes, go tell him what you see. That's how he answered. He didn't actually preach a sermon to him. He demonstrated for him. And what did he demonstrate? Not just that he was, he was the Messiah, but that he was the, he came to restore things back to the way they were supposed to be. He didn't come to destroy. He didn't come to tear down or conquer in the way maybe that John was thinking He came to rescue and restore. No doubt John, being familiar with the scriptures, would remember a lot of these fulfillments in the Old Testament. Listen to these. These were all talking about Jesus. Just in the book of, just just Isaiah, I'll give an example here. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake, sing for joy. Isaiah 29, 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, and the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. These are all verses that speak of the Messiah who was to come and set up his kingdom on earth, right? That that wasn't happening necessarily, right? But these are these are what we call new earth verses. These are, these are heaven verses, okay? If you keep reading Matthew and you get to the end, you'll find that heaven doesn't actually come at the end of Gospel of Matthew. The new earth and the kingdom of Jesus doesn't actually come in a physical sense when the, when the gospel ends. Matter of fact, when the gospel of Matthew ends, the old earth still remains. Death still remains. Doubt remains. Despair remains. So what in the world is going on. These are verses about him. What's happening? Understand this. In order for Jesus to remove sin and the results of sin, okay, like death, like despair, 
right? Like, like doubt, like injustice, he had to take them on first. He had to get in the ring, as it were, with those things and do battle. He had to redeem before he could renew. The blind man, think about this, all the miracles that he did. The blind man who was healed that we saw would eventually lose his sight again, right? In death. The, the lame who was able to walk again would eventually lose his power to walk in death. The, the deaf who could, who could hear again would lose, lose their power to hear in death. And even the dead people that Jesus rose from the dead, guess what was going to happen? They were going to die again, okay? The miracles that Jesus did were a foretaste of what, he was going, what he's going to do in the future when he returns. But in order to have those things be permanent one day, in order to have all these things done away with, including death one day, in order to have doubt, despair, and death permanently done away with, he'd have to, as it were, fall on the sword of death first. Jesus would become all that he healed. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he was blindfolded, lost his sight, as it were, beaten by rods. He was he was poor, having all of his clothes stripped off of him before he went to the cross and was nailed there. He was treated like a leper. He was abandoned by heaven and earth. He died on a cross. He didn't come strong to bring judgment. He came weak to bear judgment. And then he's going to come strong in judgment later, okay? But he had to first come weak to bear judgment. You say, what does, that have to, what does all have to do with this whole subject of doubt and despair? It means... That when, when God withdraws and we experience the dark night of the soul, as the Puritans talked about it, he does, it means he does not abandon us, even though we may feel that way. He will never forsake us, right? Why? Why will he never forsake those who, who are his, the followers of Christ? Because when the Father withdrew from the Son, he actually did abandon him on the cross. When, when Jesus went into the garden to pray and it says there he fell on his knees and he sweat drops of blood is because when he, when, he, when he went to go pray, he found hell open before him and he staggered, right? He understood what he was about to go into, not just the physical side, the emotional, the spiritual side, the abandonment of God himself. He was truly deserted by God. Why? Why would Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus became our sin. Everything we have done or not done was put on him. Right? He, he became that, right? So that now in the dark night of the soul, now when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we as Christians can walk through it knowing that God has not forsaken us, that he is with us because Jesus was already forsaken for us. He already faced that. He already went through that alone for us so that we'll never be alone to go through those. And God is just. He doesn't judge the same, same sin twice. He already judged it on the cross. This nurse come today. When Jesus returns and the reign of doubt and the reign of despair, the reign of death will be no more. The kingdom of God is coming in that way. And so for the present time, though, we must run. We must run to Jesus together. We must run on mission together. You say, how do I respond? How do I respond to Jesus? Well, you got two choices. You can respond like the religious leaders do in our text, or you can respond like the broken do as we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew. You can respond as those who think they're well and okay, or you can respond like one who knows that they're dreadfully sick. Okay? Look at the text. Look at verse 16. But what you like compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge. You didn't mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he's got a demon. So the man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You say, what in the world's going on there? <laughs> what is happening? In those days, this may seem strange to you, but the boys and girls loved to play weddings and funerals. Those were the two biggest events in a, in a village life, right? A wedding and a funeral were big events. Everybody came together for those things. So they, they acted those out. You know, it's kind of what they did. When I was little, we played like cops and robbers. You know, that was kind of like the big thing. That's what they did. They played these things out. And sometimes they, they played weddings. And when they played weddings, they, 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 you know, a boy and a girl would dance together and pretend like they're the bride and the groom. Sometimes they would play funeral. And that may sound strange, but they would. They'd play funeral, and they would sing sad songs. They would pretend to cry like people would do at a funeral. And what Jesus said is like, but some children get bored of that. 
they, 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 they grew past that, as it were. They didn't want to play weddings. They didn't want to play funerals anymore. In fact, they didn't want to play anything at all. They were bored with this childish stuff, and they made fun of the kids who were still play-acting in these things. But Jesus' point is that the religious leaders, they're like spoiled little brats. <laughs> That's what they are. That's what he says. John, John, only, John only seemed to play funeral music, as it were, and they, in calling for repentance and calling for judgment, and then Jesus comes along playing almost like wedding music. He's healing people. He's casting out demons like he's raising people from the dead. He's playing funeral music. He's playing wedding music, as it were, and they call both of them demons, right? So they call them both. John's crazy. Jesus is demon-possessed. They didn't want the holiness and wrath of God, and they didn't want the love and forgiveness of God. What did they want? They wanted their own God. They wanted to make up their own, right? <laughs> they made him up, a, a God that would be small enough to compromise, a God small enough to, to, to pretend that their imperfect lawmaking was sufficient and adequate, a salvation small enough for their merits to earn. They want Jesus to dance to their tune. And Jesus goes, nope, I ain't gonna dance to your tune. <laughs> he loves us too much, actually, to dance to our tune. Um, you need to dance to his. You say, well, how do, I, how do I go to Jesus then? The answer is you go hard. Listen to what he says, verse 12. The days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Ooh, what's going on there? It means that when people finally understand the gospel, they will do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. They will get anything out of their way. They will abandon all to follow Jesus, and it's violent because they're just they're laying it all down. We've seen this with the crowds already, right? They press in to Jesus. We saw the tax collectors like Matthew. What did he do? Left his entire career behind and said, I, I'll leave it all and follow you. The, the fishermen dropped their nets and they followed Jesus, left everything behind. The guys on the rooftop, remember them? They, they, they do whatever they can. We got to get on the roof. They climb up top. They bring their friend. They cut a hole in. They drop him down, right? Whatever it takes to get to Jesus, whatever's in our way, we get it out of the way, we're going to go to him. That's what we see. The woman in the crowd who's dying, right? And she, she, she pushed past all the uncomfort of that. She pushed past, pushed past all the crowds and all the people and abandoned the, that all the social things would come along with that and still went in to touch Jesus. These people were pushing and shoving. These people were sacrificing everything to get to Jesus despite their doubts, despite the despair, despite their circumstances. They went all in because they saw Jesus as valuable. Two chapters later, Matthew 13, Jesus would give a parable. We'll say that the, the kingdom of heaven himself, he's, it's, like a, it's like a treasure that a man hid in the field, right? And someone comes along and sells everything to buy that field so they can get that treasure. That's what he's saying. That, that's the violent part. I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to do everything I can and get anything out of the way that's blocking me from coming to Jesus. So if you don't know Christ, it's one of those things, I'm going to go all in for all of Jesus. I'm going to give up, right, my sin. I'm going to surrender, and I'm going to lay everything down at his feet and say whatever you want. If you're a follower of Jesus, you may also have things in your way, things that are blocking your path and your closeness to Jesus. You've got stuff, you've got people, you've got something in the way. And he says, you know, the violent take it by force. The violent go, okay, let's get this out of the way. Let's lay it all down. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful, but I'm going to give this up because it's in my way of getting close to Jesus. Some of you need to come all the way to Christ. You've been playing church. Stop trying to have Jesus dance to your tune. You need to be like those guys on the roof. Stop making excuses, climb on the roof, cut a hole in, drop in, okay? Whatever it takes. Others of you here today, you're struggling. You're a Christian, you, you have your doubts. You need, you need to not let anything get in the way of going hard after Jesus, joining together with other doubters in this room, on mission together to pursue Jesus together and help each other carry those burdens. I'll leave you with a, a quote here from John Patton, who's one of my favorite guys from history. He knew what it was like to be alone, to have doubts, I love how he put this one day. He, was, he, was, he had two, two tribes that were trying to, both didn't like him, and they both wanted to kill him. And he, he took one of their advice to climb up into a tree and just sit there and act, be quiet and hope they, don't, hope they don't find you. And he said this. He said, being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends. In other words, I don't know if these guys are actually for me or not. They may kill me too. I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there all alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets, the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me, speak more soothingly in my soul than when, we, when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves 
and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge, grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. And here's the question for us. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? As we go to communion, that's the question we want to ask, right? There's, there's little cups in front of you. There's bread and there's juice inside of those. If you are a follower of Christ, you're welcome to take part in that. But as you do, I want you to consider, right? This is an opportunity. We're going to have some slides up. We've got a couple of quotes. We've got some verses up on the screen. We're going to have some quiet time. Read those. Reflect on those. And consider, do you have doubts this morning? Christian, do you have doubts? Do you have despair? Can I remind you again, God longs. Listen to me. This is very important. God longs for what lies in the depths of your soul. Whatever's there, okay? Whatever's deep down in there, things that you just don't tell anybody about, the despair, the doubt, the things, God longs for that. This is your opportunity. Just keep, lay it down. <laughs> lay it down. Cast your cares, Jesus says. Cast your cares upon me because why? Because I, I care for you, right? Cast them down. This is your opportunity to reflect. If you're ready, you may take that. If you don't know Christ, hey, you have your doubts. You don't even understand. You, you, you don't believe. You don't know. We welcome your questions. We welcome those, please. We love for you to ask them. There's, there's no question that is off limits. This is a place you're welcome to ask your questions. This is a place you're welcome to struggle and find the reality of God in Christ, and we want to help you. We want to point you to him. So if you have your questions, please see us. People around you who know Christ, ask them. Ask me. Right? We'd love to answer your questions. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Um, to think about the opportunity to take communion, we are very grateful that we can do that as a church. Lord, you tell us uh, in the Gospels later on here, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, you tell us later on to, to take the bread and take the juice and to do it in remembrance of you. God, we want to remember tangibly that we, the reality of the fact that we have a God today that loves us, that has shown us grace and forgiveness that we have a God that will never, ever forsake us is because, God, this bread and this juice reminds us that, God, your body and blood was broken and poured out for us so that those things can be true. Thank you, God, that you can hold all of our pain and all of our doubts and all of our struggles. And I pray, God, you would help each of us just to be real and honest with you today and that, God, you would draw us close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.